God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We pray for wisdom and insight this morning as we take up this next section in Acts. God, we thank you for the record that we have here of the struggles that the early church had with the gospel as it relates to culture. And we pray that, that you would give us wisdom as we look out on the landscape in front of us and how we effectively and accurately um, display and proclaim the gospel to our nation, to our city. Uh, would you be with us this morning as we discuss these things and help our conversation to be fruitful and glorifying to you and edifying to us? In Christ's name we pray, amen. We're looking at Acts 21, starting in verse 17. We're going to go through 17 through 26 today. And uh, by way of review, we've gone through Paul's goodbyes. Uh, he's said he's gone through the uh, Asian churches that he started and ministered in. And he said his goodbyes, and his final destination before getting to Jerusalem was uh, at the house of uh, a Gentile, well, no, a Hellenistic Christian, a Jewish Hellenistic Christian named uh, Nason. It's the, the Greek form of the word Jason, the name Jason, but they, they, Luke records his name in the Hellenized version. And what they're doing is they're taking... Um, an entourage of Asian Christians with a gift to the church at Jerusalem because the church at Jerusalem is, is getting, it's getting dicey in Jerusalem at this time. Um, and so they've got money that they're bringing to the suffering church there. And from our section today through chapter uh, 26, verse 32, could, a lot of scholars call this Paul's testimony before the Jews. He's done testimony at Jewish synagogues all over Asia. Here it's actually in Judea proper that he's going to be testifying. And ultimately he'll be before the Jewish king at the last stage of this. But uh, the, the Roman officials do have kind of a more significant uh, presence in chapters 24 through 26, and we'll get there. But, um, but through chapter 23-35, Paul is in Jerusalem and on Jewish territory. Why is that a problem? Why is that difficult? What's going on at this time period that would cause his trip to Jerusalem to be such a dangerous journey? We know that the, the, the testimony of Paul himself, that the Holy Spirit was driving him to Jerusalem, but that he would suffer, and the testimony of the prophets that we've seen as we've walked through the passages before this, are that you're getting, you know, the man who wears this belt is going to be bound in chains. You know, we've seen that stuff going on. There's historically a, a, a it's a boiling cauldron waiting to explode here. Um, and we'll get to that in a minute. Luke spends a lot of time uh, on Paul's um, visit, we'll call it, to Jerusalem. It's 12 days that he's there, and Luke details it. Uh, the last three chapters of the book are a two-year time period, and he, and he just blows through those. 
But here at this time, he really spends a lot of time on Paul's testimony to the Jews. And it's very important to bring that out. Um, and it begins with Paul's meeting with the elders at the Jerusalem church and James, the brother of Jesus, starting in verse 17. But before we get there, uh, I spent a little time this morning. I didn't know if I was going to do this, but I decided to go ahead and do this. Trying to chart out a, uh, an answer to some questions that I, I'd gotten after last week's lesson. Um, there was a, there was a, 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 a few of you uh, said this, and I think it's a natural thing. Gosh, how cool of Paul to be able to hear clearly what God's will was for his life, right? How clearly he, he got the word of the Holy Spirit, he's got to go to Jerusalem. How clear it was that all these prophets were telling him, you got to go, but you're going to suffer and how to prepare him. And, and the implication is, I wish I had that, right? And that's a natural thing for us. We read this kind of stuff. Gosh, it was so clear, so clear for Paul to make this decision because he's been told, he's been told, he's been told. I want to make two points just for your consideration. One, it wasn't that clear. Remember, the testimony of the Holy Spirit and of the prophets was, go to Jerusalem. If you go, you're going to suffer. He still had to take those pieces of information and wrestle with them. What do I need to do? Is he saying, I'm going to suffer, therefore don't go? Is it a conditional prophecy? Or is it a, just merely a description of what's going to happen? He still had to wrestle with the wisdom that he'd, been, that he'd been given by the Holy Spirit to know what to do in that situation, right? He had the added complication of, is this the Holy Spirit telling me or is it a bad falafel, right? He still had to decide, is this, he's got to make that determination, is this the Holy Spirit guiding me? He also had to make the determination, the people that were telling him these things, are they, is their testimony of the Holy Spirit tainted by their love for me wanting to protect me? How much credibility should I give to this? So he's got to wrestle through those things. He had to make decisions based on the discernment given to him by his study of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit working in him. What, which is what he goes to in, in Colossians and other places. Christ is the wealth of wisdom, is the, is the treasures of wisdom, and, and, and all of that. The second point I want to make is you have a more excellent prophecy. 1 Peter 1, 16 says this. For, this is Peter, right? For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty for when He received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. This is not falafel. This is the very vo voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What's he talking about? Transfiguration. The transfiguration. This is an objective experience that, that Peter, James, and John had with the transformed Christ on the mountain, right? Very clear, very direct. There's no guesswork here. The, the, the issues that Paul had with the stuff that we've read about so far, are not here. And yet, what does Peter say? And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. 
to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. There's not, the, there's not that issue. Is this God or is it not? It's here. We have it. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible that you hold in your hand, or on your tablet or phone or whatever, the Bible that you hold in your hand is a more sure word than that received by Paul to go to Jerusalem. It's more sure than Peter received, and James and John, viewing the voice coming from heaven, hearing the voice coming from heaven at the transfiguration. He says the Bible is more certain than even that. And you have it. Where's the difficulty? Because the New Testament wasn't written by the time it was... Well, maybe that. For Paul, yes. But I'm talking about where's the difficulty for us? Obedience. Interpretation. Application. And interpretation. How do, we, how do we read it? How do we understand it? There's a, there's a discipline involved, right? We have to know what kind of book it is. We've got to know how to read it. We've got to know generally what the whole counsel of God is as we go to interpret things. It takes work. And it's much easier for somebody to tell me, thus says the word of the Lord, go do this, and just to trust that, than it is for me to actually have to sit down with Second Peter or Acts and wrestle through what does it mean to them what is it saying? What does it mean to me in my context? Right? What strikes me? <laughs> what questions do I have? How does it apply to me today? It's much easier to just say, oh, this guy told me. And lots of people do that. The guys in Rome tell me this, I'm going to do it. The guys in Brooklyn tell me this, I'm going to do it. The guys in Salt Lake City tell me this, I'm going to do it. We have a more excellent word. And we should be very thankful for that and not give in to the natural inclination of having this like it's some kind of benefit to have somebody else tell us what to do because we still have to interpret what the interpreter is saying. We're just we're pushing the, the work one level back and making it actually harder. Ask a Roman Catholic what the Pope says on any given subject. And when you have a room full of 10 Catholics, you'll get 12 opinions. It's the same thing. So anyway, I just wanted to. If you ask me that question, you're not the only one. It was several, and so I thought it was necessary to, to kind of address that. We have that, um, that, that, that issue in Christianity, that Christianity is a thinking man's religion. We, we don't rely on feeling. I mean, there's feeling, but that's not what drives us. The text drives us. And so let's do some thinking this morning. Visit with James, verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went with us, went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, 
how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Stop there. He waltzes into Jerusalem. How's he received? Gladly. Gladly, warmly, right? That's, that's the way Luke, by whom though? The brothers. The brothers. How's he received by the elders in Jerusalem the next day? Cautiously, that's a good word. Why do you say that? They were concerned about the uh, division he could cause. Yeah, they're concerned about the division. Why, why was he a divisive character? First of all, they rejoiced, right? So we can't just completely dismiss that. They rejoiced at his work among the Gentiles. They had given the, the, op, the, the marching orders on it with the Jerusalem Council back way back when, in chapter 16, I believe, 15. <clears throat> but they were cautious. Why? Yeah. He's changing their world. He's changing the world. He's flipping it upside down. I mean, he's talking about he, their way of life, their religion, everything is changed because of Christ. And so if that's what he's preaching, then they're worried, worried that their worldview, sacrificial system, everything has changed. What's significant about the sacrificial system to a Jew? Why is that a big deal? Everything revolves around it's their atonement. Everything revolves around it. It's their atonement. But he says even new Christians are, are pushing back on Paul. Why? What is it about the Torah that is so important to them? As a Christian, as a Jewish Christian, why is that important? Because it's old. Because it's old, because it's tradition. What is it? Uh, whose tradition? It's, it's theirs. It's, it's theirs. theirs. It's theirs. You will be set apart as my people, right? And this is how you're set apart. How? What's the first way they're set apart? Eight days. Circumcision, Circumcision of the males. So there's a male headship thing that happens. The women aren't in covenant with God unless it's through the fathers or the husband. You got that issue. Then you've got, I'm a Jew and I'm special because I have the covenant of Abraham operating even in my own body. What is significant about Paul's gospel that threatens that? It's not limited to Jews. It's not limited to Jews. What else? 
and you don't have to become a Jew. The gospel transcends ethnic fidelity, cultural fidelity. It transcends nationalism because a Greek doesn't have to become a Jew and a Jew doesn't have to cease being a Jew. Is that a double negative? A, a Jew can remain a Jew. Right? But that can be perceived as an attack on their tradition. Exactly. Yeah, because it says in, in verse 21 that the Jews, uh, that they're saying that Paul's telling them to forsake Moses. That's right. not what Paul's saying. No. That's how they're interpreting it. Well, that's, that's the rumor they're spreading around. Yeah. And we'll get to the they in a minute. Who's the they? It's always significant. Um, so his reception with the brothers is warm. And some say that the brothers that he's being received by are the Hellenistic Jews, the Hellenistic Christians that are there. His reception by the elders is kind of mixed, isn't it? Hey, we're glad that God is doing this stuff in Gentile territory. Praise God for that. That's what we wanted. That's what we, we did in the Jerusalem Council to give you cover that we endorse the, the mission that you have with these conditions that they need to respect table manners among Jews and they need to follow the, the moral code, abstain from sexual immorality, kind of implies that whole Ten Commandments is still operative for uh, the Christian, regardless of whether they're Jew or Gentile. Um, th this was a compromise the Jewish council made, that the Jerusalem council made. Um, the Gentiles would not have to be observers of the ceremonial law, but Jewish Christians could continue in it. So, What's the problem that the, the elders are facing? What, what's going on with their Jewish converts? Well, how, does Luke, how do they describe them? Zealous for the law. Zealous for the law. Does that sound familiar? But who do, who's that remind you of? Jesus. Saul. Saul. Or Paul, yeah. It reminds you of Paul. In what way? How do we know that about Paul. Because he, he says it, right? He describes his life pre-conversion. He says, I'm, I'm a Pharisee among Pharisees. I'm a Jew among Jews. Let me tell you about my cred, right? I have, I'm zealous for the law of my fathers. He talks about this in one of his letters. The word zealous here has a deeper meaning than at first glance. What Luke is referring to here is the time frames. But scholars put Paul's time in Jerusalem around the mid-50s, early 50s. Um, there was bebop music going on in Jerusalem. <laughs> so it's about 52, 53 A.D., somewhere around there. This is kind of the, the, the beginning, of, or the, maybe midpoint of, increasing nationalism in Judea. They hated with a, a, a fierce hatred the Roman occupation of Judea. They hated it. And there was insurrection after insurrection after insurrection. I mean, it, it was like a Bernie Sanders campaign to capitalism. They hated the Romans. And so they tried to overthrow them again and again and again. And Felix, who was proconsul at this time, brutally suppressed those things in, in, in just shock and awe, right? So... How do you think that very violent, brutal suppression of these insurrections 
went with the general populace in Jerusalem and in Judea? Would it make them more friendly to the Romans or more hostile to the Romans? Every Jewish life matters. Uh, obviously, there would be increasing hostility, right? Wow. It increased their hatred for Rome and inflamed also this anti-Gentile sentiment among Jews. And friendliness with the enemy was viewed as disloyalty to your people. You see that? In walks Paul. It's a cauldron. Um, he's apostle to the Gentiles. Doesn't he bring Gentile believers with him? He does. He does. He brings Gentile believers into Jerusalem with him. Uh, and so how do you think, just projecting, take a, take a walk in their sandals, how do you think he would be received by not just the Jews in the town, but the Jewish converts in the town. What does that tell you? That there are Jewish converts who are zealous for the nationalism of their country, such that they have a very anti-Gentile sentiment going on. These are Christians who are having this, who are dealing with this. His working among the Gentiles was discredited among the general Jewish population, which the, the elders were seeking to reach. They're, they've got a mission to Jews. Has it been successful? They're, the Jerusalem church's mission to Jewish population? Has it been successful? He said you had Jewish converts. He said he had Jewish converts? And, in the, and how many? I mean, he talks about how many. He talk, and it's not, it is, in Lucan words, it is no small number of Jewish converts that they have in, in, in Jerusalem and in Judea. Thousands. Yeah. Yet, they're, they've got these biases that they're dealing with within their congregation and within the general populace. And so they're trying to be sensitive to the biases, not necessarily condoning them, but not breaking with them over it so as to cause an obstacle to the gospel. They're trying to walk a very fine line here. And Paul is kind of a liability, right? Here's the guy we gave cover to bringing in Gentile Christians into Jerusalem. What's the charge? We've already said. What's the charge against him? This rumor that's going around. <clears throat> Some about Moses. What's the charge? <clears throat> What's the charge? They're, he's he's telling Jewish Christians. Or, or Jews in Gentile areas and the synagogues to forsake Moses. Is that true? No. No. Only the He's only forsaking the law. Is Paul? He's not, no. Nope. Paul's not forsaking him. He's actually, what he's teaching is what the council has decided. Exactly. Exactly. He's completely consistent with what the council has said, how to deal with Gentile Christians and, and to deal with the, the Jewish-Gentile relationship. They're supporting Paul's mission, and they rejoice in the work of the Holy Spirit among the Gentiles, but their mission to the Jews is on a knife's edge. His work among the Gentiles was discredited among the general Jewish population. The zealousness for the law 
um, here also indicates that many of the converts were coming out of the Pharisees. So you have the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection as opposed to the Sadducees, right? Who did not. I'm going to let it go. <laughs> and so the Pharisees, I mean, actually, that's kind of a natural progression from where they were theologically that the Pharisee would become a Christian. I mean, the, the belief in the resurrection is key in Christianity. And so their, their hopes in Christ being raised uh, would be natural. But they still had this zealous view of Jewish identity. And so Paul was a liability to their mission against, uh, against uh, uh, a mission to the Jews. So they're claiming that Paul says, Abandon Moses, don't circumcise your children. That's kind of significant, right? Yes, uh, and during this time, if my history is correct, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, there was also a uh, schism within the Christian church during that t same time period of Judaizing Christians, so there were false prophets who were speaking at the same time in the, in the perfect time period to do so. So, I mean, there's Galatians was written to that issue, wasn't it? Yeah. The whole book of Galatians is written to who's bewitched you. Why are you adding the law on top of it? So Paul's clearly teaching that the law doesn't save you. But he's not teaching abandon the law, Jews. He's not teaching that. Gentiles don't have to become Jews. Jews can remain Jews. Yeah. So at this time, the, the Jewish Christians who are still keeping the law, are they still going to make sacrifices but recognizing it as, as a symbol of what Christ did for them? Or what, how did that work? Because I'm not sure how that... It was a different, um, it was a different idea right. than before becoming a Christian when you're going to... The Day of Atonement, right. you're expecting and believing that... Make that apply to me. Make that apply yeah. to me. But if you're a Jewish Christian going to the Day of Atonement, you would be saying, this is a symbol of how Christ's blood did apply to me. Right. And, did they do that? And we have clear evidence that they're still doing sacrifices because Paul does. <clears throat> He's paying for these guys that are going to the temple are under, we'll discuss in a second, a Nazarite vow. We'll discuss it now. They're under a Nazarite vow, right? The Nazarite vow, which we will learn in Numbers, was an incredibly uh, extreme, pious action by Jews. You let your hair grow, uh, and then at the end of your time of the vow, you cut your hair, you burn your hair as a, a sacrifice, which is weird, but they burn their hair as a sacrifice, on the, on the altar. And then they also have these very expensive um, sacrifices that are involved where you got a, a, a male lamb, a female lamb, a ram, and some ceremonial cereal and drink offerings that you got. So a very expensive deal, right? They make those sacrifices. And there are four Christians about to go do that. So they're still making sacrifices at the temple and showing this Jewish piety. I don't know what the mentality is on that. I suspect that it is, this is a cultural thing. This is part of my identity as a Jew. It doesn't save me, but I do it to display my Jewishness among my Jewish people. That's, that's really the only thing I can come to conclusion of how to do that rightly. I think there's some crossover there because that's why Paul wrote Galatians. 
right? You're, you're not saved by the Nazarite vow. You're not saved by the Day of Atonement in the temple. That's already happened. He goes through all of those arguments. It's by faith in Christ alone. He, he hammers that. But he doesn't say stop doing that stuff because you're a Jew, but just realize what it means in the context of Christ. I think that's really where the, where the issue is. So um, circumcision is, is a badge of identification with God's people. Paul argued that circumcision doesn't save you. He, did he oppose circumcision of Gentiles? No. But what? He didn't, he didn't require it for salvation. Right. In fact, we know that he didn't oppose it for Gentiles because of what he did with Timothy. <clears throat> Remember, Timothy was kind of a half-breed. He had a Greek father, Jewish mother, right? He had Paul. Um, imagine that conversation. Timothy... <laughs> As an adult, Timothy going into Jerusalem or going into Judea area had him circumcised because everybody knew his dad was a Greek. So, to the Jew be a Jew, to the Greek be a Greek, so that you may win some to Christ. I mean, that's Paul's mentality. It's not put significance on this from a salvation standpoint, but just don't take unnecessary steps to be an obstacle. In addition, the gospel's hard enough. Coming to grips with our sin and that we need a Savior, that's hard enough. Why put obstacles to it? So that's where he's doing. And it's the same idea here. With, the, with circumcision, it's the same idea with the Torah. He would not force ceremonial law on the Gentile converts, but had no issue with Jews maintaining their cultural heritage. He made the very fundamental argument that the, the law does not save you. But the law is good. Romans 7, the law is good. However, how receptive were the synagogues in the Asian countries, in the Gentile territory, how receptive were the synagogues to Christianity? What do we see time and time and time again? Not so much, right? So if you're a Christian Jew, and your whole world revolves around synagogue life before your conversion, once you're converted, you're basically ostracized from these synagogues, where do you go? Naturally, where would you go? Homes, house churches. House churches where there are primarily who? Greek. Greeks. So your, your community becomes non-Jewish. What, what happens naturally in the influence of a non-Jewish community to your adherence to ceremonial Jewish law. What's that? It's becoming, it's going to weaken. It's going to be questioned. It's going to be questioned. Why do I do this? No, none of my friends do. So by function of what Paul is doing in Gentile communities, Jewish Christians are becoming less and less and less tied to ceremonial law. That's where their peer group is, in, among Gentiles. So they're blaming Paul for that. Who should they be blaming? The synagogues, right? The people who kicked them out. But by function of what Paul is doing, this influence of Gentiles on Jewish Christians becomes uh, more of an inclination to adapt Gentile practice. They, they follow the Jerusalem council, basically. 
not the, all the ceremonies, but the Jerusalem Council. So Paul didn't urge this, but it's a natural result of his mission and the rejection of the Jews of the Christians. There's no evidence here that the elders believed this stuff, but perception is reality for a lot of people. How we approach a subject, how we approach a topic, becomes reality. And good leaders deal with the reality. They've got to address the perception. What is their proposal? Show you're a Jew, Paul. How? What do they propose? Is it a vow? It's a Nazarite vow. We have two. We have four guys, Paul. Just happen to have these guys here, who are taking a Nazarite vow. What do they tell them to do? Stop the Nazarite vow by shaving their head. Well, they're at the end of it. They've got to go. They've got to go make their sacrifices at the end of it. So, what does he tell them? What do they tell them to do? Pay for them to complete their vow. Be involved, be involved in the ceremony. How can he do that? It's very convoluted. I'm not really sure what his participation is in this because this is a 30-day vow, and he's coming in on seven days. So how's he going to do that? Some scholars wrestle with this, and they come to the conclusion that Paul, in addition to helping these men complete this very expensive end of their Nazarite vow, is also doing a purification ritual that we've seen before, which is shake the dust from your feet. Remember that? When you leave Gentile territory, come into the Holy Land, you purify yourself. Which is very simple, very Jewish thing to do. You don't get much more Jewish than saying, this is the holy place, I've just come from dirt. Right? I've been out with the pigs and now I'm going to come purify myself so I can be among you. Very Jewish. In addition to paying for their 30-day vow sacrifices, he's taking a seven-day purification ritual, which he indicates here at the end of this section. This payment for Nazarite vow sacrifices is something that Josephus tells us Agrippa did to gain favor with Jews. If it's good enough for King Agrippa, right? Just go pay the stuff. How much is it, though? Well, how much, is a, how much are t two lambs, a ram, and drink and, and bread offerings? I don't know. For, for poor guys. Who are, for four, yeah, for four guys and poor guys. For poor four guys. Four poor guys or poor four guys? I don't know. Is there any burger place? It, it could be. It could be. <laughs> Burgers are made with roadkill. I don't know. But anyway. So you have this... Uh, this Compromise of um, Paul making a public display of this Nazarite vow, this very extreme form of Jewish piety. All right, so where does James land at the end of his speech to Paul? Where does he rest at the end of his speech to Paul? And then he's telling that they wrote to the Gentiles to not take place in like sacrifices and stuff. Why is he saying that? I mean, like so Christianity's a balance. It's not like over here or over here. It's like it's not essential to salvation. Right. And he's talking about Gentiles. He's confirming again, we're committed to the, what the Jerusalem Council said, right? We're committed to the decision that we made at the Jerusalem Council. Gentiles don't need to become Jews. Jews can remain Jews. 
Paul, you're a Jew. <laughs> right? And what he's saying is, we're not requiring this of anybody else but you, given these circumstances. And it's not even a requirement, it's a suggestion. Why don't you do this? It's in the form of a question James is doing. James is trying to walk a very fine line. He wants the church to grow in Jerusalem. He wants the gospel to flourish in Jerusalem. But he realizes that it's a powder keg. He wants to acknowledge the church's commitment to Paul's law-free gospel among the Gentiles and to maintain an effective witness among the Jews for which faithfulness to the law was essential. The question is, and Paul does it, right? I mean, we, we can finish out the section. He does it. He goes, he pays the stuff, and, <clears throat> and he tells about, you know, he, he proclaims his end of his fast or whatever ritual he's doing for purity to the temple. He does it. He does what they suggest. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think, and you may be getting to this too, but I I'm think probably not. Lo looking, at, looking at Paul's response to this, um, is I just think his humility and submissiveness are are pretty incredible because he absolutely could have said, just let me speak to him and let me give a defense for yeah. why I do what I do, how I do it, and I haven't done anything. I don't have to do this. You know, he, he could have called for a mission moment at the Jerusalem church. <laughs> I mean, he had every right to defend what he's been doing, but instead he, he, you see this humility right. and submissiveness to the recommendation of the elders and James. Yeah, yeah. And I agree with Tammy because Paul is not a people pleaser. He is not a pushover. He's going to do what he believes is right via constitution from within. Right. So the fact that he's doing this, it means something. Because I would see a lot of us as going, yeah, the Jews and everything, I'm, I'm just going to do what they say. I'm going to try to you know, be mm -hmm. political in, mm -hmm. in my reaction. Yeah. But Paul is doing it. He's not doing it because he's a people pleaser. He's doing it. Purposefully, he's already committed to the principle, right? Right. And he said it in Corinthians. He he he's already written that letter. He's committed on paper to that principle, and here is that principle in operation. Did it work? Did it work? So the pericope tells you what. It didn't work from the stand, and that's a good, is it yes? The, 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 it didn't work from the standpoint of accomplishing what James and the elders wanted to accomplish, which is a peace. Because obviously they're not a peace. Who, who are those who are spreading the rumors, by the way? Who's the they? Who do you think? It's Passover time. People coming in from everywhere. Jewish leaders in Asia. Some are saying, uh, some scholars argue that it's the, it's the Ephesian Jews that have come in, and, they, and we'll see next week, they see a Gentile, Trophinius, with Paul walking through Jerusalem like he owns a place, and they're offended by that, and saying they assume that Paul has taken him into the temple, and that's what we'll get to next time. Ultimately, it doesn't work uh, with Paul, what James is trying to do is protect Paul. He gets arrested. And after our passage next time, we will see that the rest of the narrative of, of Acts, Paul's in chains. He, he is never, not, not one word in the rest of Acts has Paul free from chains. He's a prisoner from this point forward.
So it didn't work with Paul. Ultimately, it didn't work for the Jerusalem church. James is heralded by Josephus as James the Just. He was honored among the Jews. And yet there was an interim where Felix dies and before the next proconsul comes in, the high priest uses that as an opportunity to put James to death. And the way he does it, according to Josephus, and again Eusebius tells us the same thing, is he takes him to the top of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, and throws him off. And then they stone him. And if that wasn't enough, they beat him to death with clubs. And there were Jews in Jerusalem who sent letters of protest to Rome because of the action of their high priest. James was respected among the people. But they viewed Christianity as a threat against their nationalism. When, and that happens in 62 AD, or AD 62, however you want to do it. AD 62. Eight years later, <clears throat> another insurrection happens, and Jerusalem is destroyed, right? From that point forward, Jewish leaders taught that, decreed that, Christianity was heretical to Judaism. And if you were a Christian, you could no longer have any fellowship with Jews. So ultimately, it doesn't work. Historically, it doesn't work. Um, all right. What do we do do with this? Paul's attempts to not be an offense to the nationalists of his day are instructive to us. Um, there are Christians in our day that equate patriotism as a necessary component to American Christianity. Uh, some of that debate is going on right now among leaders on how to approach Muslims in America with the gospel. There's a huge Twitter war going on <laughs> over this issue. Um, it, it's seen by some as naive to trust the power of the gospel among Muslims when they have in their doctrines this idea of house of war, house of peace. In the house of war, if you're in a foreign country that's not Muslim, you can be deceptive. You can tell them what they want to hear while you're undermining the government. That's a, that's a doctrine within Islam. And yet, there are others who say the gospel is effective. The gospel is powerful why would we withhold that from the Muslim population that's been brought to our shores? Why would we not engage them with the gospel? Do we believe it or not? It's a battle. It's a cultural battle. Are we of America? Or are we of Christ? Is kind of the way that's coming out. How do we approach this dynamic with wisdom? This is the same argument being made in Jerusalem, how do we deal with an enemy in the gate, so to speak, with the gospel? I wonder how Paul would have treated the Gentiles if they were killing Jews by masses. They were, weren't they? Each insurrection? I mean, they were still, they were doing that. The Romans were doing that. The, Felix was brutally suppressing that. Oh, yeah, Um... How are we going to navigate this kind of stuff? I'll end with this. We have before us 
the prophetic word, which we would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. Uh, let me read this and then we'll, we'll do comments in a second. Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek and the Muslim, I would throw in there. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We're to be faithful and we're to give the outcomes over to God. That We can't control outcomes. We've got to be faithful to the gospel. And engaging with people that are putative enemies to us, I mean, that's the heart of the gospel. We were enemies to God. We need to be about engaging. I'm not saying do it unwisely, but that's the, that's the rub, isn't it? How do we discern what is wise in engaging this, um, this population? Yeah, go ahead. Ultimately, for the Jerusalem church, because Jerusalem got sacked. Right. Um, but um, looking at, at history, is it not that push that that where you don't have Jews going to a synagogue anymore because there is not a synagogue right. anymore that actually pushed for more unity at, among the churches where they actually had to form churches because there were no right yeah no i agree with that I mean, so as far as it didn't work it didn't work, it didn't work politically they thought it right work. right but it did force a more cohesive because it does seem for jewish christians at the time that that's a heart divided doesn't it there's christ and there's temple and i'm doing both so there does there is that feel am i a jew or am i a christian becomes a very stark division after um, AD 70. And it did, it did drive a lot of, again, Jerusalem is struck and, 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 and they scatter and they are pushed further and further and further, even, even further than Paul went. And so that, again, helps the spread of Christianity from a macro level. But from a micro level, and for the Jerusalem church, it was devastating. It was not a peaceful time. So, any questions, comments for it to be thrown? It's ten fifteen. Well, maybe to answer that question, how should we act when enemies are against? Well, in, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, it says, "Bless those who curse you." Yeah. If they hunger, give them meat. If they thirst, give them drink. We should treat our enemy and. We should bless our enemies. Mm -hmm. uh, and what greater blessing is to present the gospel without fear of persecution? And yes, we will face persecution. That is but see, the other side of that argument, the other side of that argument is, do we just hand them over our country? Our right? Wives and children. It, yeah. Do we, do we just hand over our country for the sake of the gospel? And that's, the, that's, again, it's the two extremes that you see who are battling. Uh, again, Christianity is a thinking man's religion. <laughs> it comes back to it. We have to wrestle through these things. And uh, I don't want to demonize either side, although I think some very snarky things have gone on uh, 
I'm more sensitive to one side than the other. But, but again, it calls us. These, these issues are not new. I guess that's the point I'm making. These issues are not new. They're faced by the first century Christians. They're faced again by every generation of Christians. How are we to deal with people who are proclaimed enemies of our culture in relationship to the gospel? How do we, how do, we do that? So, uh, probably should pray and, and go since it is 10.15. Um, we need to obey the authorities uh, that, are, that, that be... God, I thank you that in Christ rests all wisdom and knowledge. And I thank you that you have uh, given to us your wisdom in your word. And I pray that as we wrestle through the big issues of our day, that we do it faithfully, we do it thoughtfully, and then we commit to it and do it boldly. Lord, would you bless us today uh, with not only hearing your word, but um, by your spirit doing it. As we go into the next service, would you, would you make a, our hearts uh, receptive to the gospel, receptive to your word? We pray for Philip that you would put words in his mouth that the church needs to hear, uh, that he would faithfully proclaim the passage for this morning, that we would faithfully receive the word of God as the bread we need the drink we crave. Um, and I pray that as we leave this place, we would continue to think through the implications of what we've heard today. And that on Monday morning, we would put it into practice. We pray for all these things in Christ's name. Amen.